Good morning, Oak Ridge. Good morning, good morning. It is a delight to be able to be here with you this morning in person. Uh, last week, both Pastor Christia and I had the opportunity to join you uh, online as we were uh, home together, and she was kind of going through initial stages of recovery. We're so grateful to uh, Pastor PD for filling in last week and kind of holding down the fort, if you will, um, and just being here in our absence. Very grateful for him. We're excited today. We're back in this series. We're still in this series called Fact Check. And again, our, our goal is to kind of take some of the perceptions that people sometimes have about life and faith and Christianity and the Bible and just kind of say, if this is what we sometimes think or what we sometimes feel, what would biblical Christianity kind of say in response? And so we've looked at the perception that there's no evidence for God's existence. And as we look at science and philosophy and mathematics, we find that over and over again, there is evidence. Now, you may not find the evidence compelling. You may think something different, but there is certainly evidence that points to the existence that there is a divine creator who made everything that we have. We talked about the perception that it doesn't matter if we go to church. And we kind of took a deep theological dive, if you will, into what does the church mean? Why, why do we do this thing where we gather on Sunday mornings with other believers? And we said that this perception is mostly false. That there's something so important about gathering together with other believers. Now, the building isn't the church. It's God's people gathering together intentionally to move closer to Jesus Christ and to read his word and to pray. We talked about the perception that the Bible is boring and hard to understand. And we said, you know what? If we're going to be brutally honest, there's at least some sections that can be a little difficult to understand and maybe a little hard to read. But the story that we have, the book that we are blessed to be able to carry with us, contains God's words to your life, that it is a beautiful and a wonderful and a powerful book that we have, and it is our privilege to be able to read it this morning. Last week, Pastor Petey shared with us about truth, maybe sharing the perception that there is no such thing as truth, and he shared with us that the truth is found in Jesus Christ. He is the Word of God who became made flesh and dwelt among us. And that we have this book, again, the words of God available to us to know who God is. The truth is there. Truth is real and truth is knowable. He encourages us to repent and to turn from sin, to understand God's precepts as in his written word, to testify and to teach God's wisdom, especially to our descendants. And that we have the hope in Jesus of an eternity in heaven. That there is a place that God has prepared where everything that he originally made is being remade and we can experience the life God had always intended for his people. This morning, if you have a Bible, whether it's a paper Bible, might be a digital Bible, might be the chair Bible in front of you, go ahead and get out a Bible though. And if you would lift it up nice and high this morning and just say, I got my Bible, PJ. I got my Bible, PJ. We're going to tear this thing apart today. If you try to flip with me everywhere we go, if you looked at that note guy, there is a bunch of verses. I don't think you're going to be able to flip to all of them. If you want to flip to some of them, you can. They're going to be on the screens this morning as we try to cover, uh, try to cover a bunch of them. And, and I hope that maybe you'll take that note guy at home. 
and stick it in that Bible, and, and you'll be able to kind of go back and look at some of these verses and some of these passages uh, in greater context. Sometimes as we go through life, there's a temptation to feel as though God doesn't love us. Let's face it, life is hard. There's temptation, there's worry, and doubt, and fear, and loss, and pain, and confusion, and anxiety, and weakness, and as we go through the challenges of this life, sometimes we wonder that first perception that we looked at. Is, is there really a God? Does God really exist? I am going through everything that I'm going through. Is there really a God? And if we become convinced that, yeah, there's got to be something more out there, then we begin to wonder, okay, if there is something more, and if this God is really strong, does he love me? Does he know what I'm going through? And sometimes we wonder this because of our own life choices. Because we have put ourselves in a place and we think, man, if there is a God who created me, he has got to be wildly ticked off. <laughs> because my life cannot be where he would want it to be. And sometimes it's the situation we find ourselves in. And we think, man, I didn't do anything. I was doing the right thing. I was trying my hardest to do everything right, and I'm here. If you're there, I don't know if God can really love. And so let's look a little bit at what Scripture would have to say about this perception that we sometimes have and some of the things that we sometimes feel that make us wonder this perception. We have to start with the most basic. God so loves the world. John 3, 16 and 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. John 3.16 is probably the most quoted verse and the most well-known verse in all of Scripture, and for very good reason. Because this verse shares with us God's default position when he looks at your life. When God looks at you, when God sees you, God's default position is that God so loves the world. When God looks at human beings, God feels love. The verse doesn't say that God loves those who have it all together. That God loves those who never sin. That God loves those who never doubt or never fear or never get angry. God loves those who wear really nice ties to church and they never miss a Sunday and they're super holy and super pious. It says God loves the world. He loves everybody. And so often I think we stop at John 3.16, but I think 17 is so powerful as well because it says God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn the world. God loved the world and his purpose in sending his son Jesus wasn't to say, man, look at those people down there. They screw it up. I'm sending my son to throw the hammer down. I love these people so much. I'm sending my son not to condemn them, not to drive them further away from them, but I want them to experience life in me. Jesus didn't come to cast you further from God's presence. 
He called the world back into relationship with God the Father. And sometimes I think we have this idea, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes there's these moments as I go through life in different situations where we go, you know what? Maybe that's true. Maybe there's a God, and maybe he's powerful, and maybe God so loves the world. But I don't feel like God loves me very much right now. And so I want to look at some other examples of God's love in Scripture. And one thing that I think we would say is that God loves you when you fail. Because that's got to be one of those moments where we wrestle the hardest with this perception is when we find ourselves in the midst of some failure where we're like, how am I here again? How am I in this spot where maybe I knew what God wanted for me and I didn't measure up? There is no way that if God is in heaven that he could love me because I am a failure. Jesus says this in, in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. But this is why the Father sent me. I didn't come to condemn the world. I didn't come for everybody who had it all together. I came because humanity, because the world by sin was separated from God. And so I saw that people were not where God created them to be in relationship with the Father. And so I came to call them and to say, when you're a failure, I'm reaching out to you. When you are a sinner, you are the one that I'm coming for. You are the one I am calling. You are the one I am inviting. You are the one I'm saying, you are not where God wants you to be. And I'm not coming to condemn you. I'm coming to invite you back into that relationship. And probably the best theology book of scripture, Paul says to the Romans, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still lost, while we were still broken, while we were still running away from God, in the midst of our failures, Jesus died for us. It wasn't, hey, get yourself cleaned up. Hey, stop doing the stupid stuff. Hey, 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 get everything in your life right, and then you can wear my redemption from the cross. It was while we were still sinners, while we were actively engaged in the very things that break the heart of God and separate the relationship that we have, that he died. Jesus came to call those who felt like they had failed the Lord and were unable to come near to him. Those who were separated from God. In the Old Testament, it would have been those who couldn't even come into the temple. They couldn't come anywhere near it. There are some of us who have this concept that uh, we wear this label of sinner with great shame. We feel like we are a failure. And even within the church, I think many of us sometimes feel like we're a failure and we wonder if God could really love us. We, we try our best to do a bunch of pious acts saying, I hope that even though I'm a failure, that I can do enough good things and that maybe the good things that I do will outweigh the bad things. And maybe, just maybe, if God is in heaven, he would look with favor upon me. We come up with cute little platitudes to make us feel better. We say silly things like, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. But what Jesus wants to offer you is something so much better. See, Jesus doesn't want you to come before him and to have to identify as, I am a sinner. 
I'm a failure. I'm broken. The, the, the Bible says that, with this, that we're born into that. That we're born in Adam. That we are born separated from God. That we are born with this sin nature. But that while we were still sinners, Christ loved us. He gave his life for us and he said, you don't have to wear the identity that you were born with. The identity of Adam. The identity of being a sinner separated from God. Because of what I offer you. Because I call you to be mine. You can be in Christ. And I call you to wear an identity that is not the one you were born with, but the one you were born again with. The one you were rebirthed with. So that you can be a new creation in Christ, born one way of Adam, but because of the work of Christ, born a new way in him. Your identity in Christ is fundamentally changed from a sinner separated from God to one with whom the Holy Spirit dwells by the work and grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus invites us into himself that we might wear his righteousness as our identity. God's love extends to you even when you fail because he doesn't see you just by your failures. And for those of us who are in Christ, he doesn't see the failures as the definition of your life. One of my favorite stories is the Gospel of John chapter 21. And if you're familiar with this story, it comes after Jesus has died and he's been resurrected. And his apostle Peter was one of his closest friends, was one of his closest apostles. And after the, Jesus is resurrected, Peter doesn't quite know what to do with his life. And he knows that he has failed. He knows he screwed up three times while Jesus was on trial. Peter was out in the courtyard saying, I don't even know the guy. Don't associate me with Jesus. I don't know who that is. And three times as Jesus is on trial, Peter denies him. And now Peter sees Jesus and he sees that he's resurrected and Peter's going, if Jesus is God and I have to believe now that he certainly is, man, he must want nothing to do with me. What can I do with my life? And Peter goes back out fishing. Because he doesn't know any better. It's all he's ever known in his life before Jesus was to be a fisherman. And Jesus stands on the shore and he talks to Peter. And I think he turns to the fish. And he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than the fish? Do you love me more than the life you used to have? You followed me for three years. You've seen my power and you've seen my glory. Peter, do you love me still? And three times, to match the three denials, Jesus asks him, do you love me? And Peter continues to respond, Lord, you know. You know my heart. You know that I love you. And three times Jesus says, then let's get back to what I called you to do. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Take care of my people. Do what I called you to do, Peter. See, he doesn't just say, Peter, it's okay that you go back to this life. But he calls him to something different. He restores him to what he always had for Peter, much like Jesus does with the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. He extends grace to her as everybody brings her before the crowd and they have their rocks and they're ready to condemn her. And Jesus says, if you have no sin, then go ahead and throw stones at her. Everybody drops their rocks and walks away. 
And Jesus says, I'm not here to condemn you either. But go and leave your life of sin. Jesus doesn't come to condemn us in our failures. He calls us to realize what he made us to be. See, I have designed you as my image bearer. I've designed you with a plan and a purpose. I want to use your life. The failure, the sin that is in your life, even the sin that you were born with in Adam separates you from God. And what I have come to do is to redeem you and make you a new creation. And even when you've failed, even when you've blown it, even when you've fallen short, my love does not stop. But I continue to come for you while you are yet a sinner and invite you back into relationship with God the Father and to say, this is the purpose that I am here for. That you might know that God loves you and what he wants is to redeem your life. He wants your life to look different than the sin that separates you from God that brings the hurt and pain. Because he's so desperately loves you. You have never sinned so greatly that God's love is not greater still. You are never such a failure that you are beyond redemption. You have never screwed up so bad that God doesn't want you. To say that Jesus would move heaven and earth for you is an understatement. He left heaven and came to earth for you. In your sin and in your failure, he loves you. And the Gospels and the Epistles are absolutely loaded with stories of God's grace and love for human beings who have fallen prey to sin in their lives. As Romans 3.23 reminds us, all of us have. God loves you when you fail. God loves you when you doubt. We might have to do a whole message or maybe even a series on this future, but Jesus' love is greater than your doubt. The Apostle Thomas is often given the nickname Doubting Thomas because of his story in John chapter 20. Jesus has been resurrected, and most of the disciples, they've had an opportunity to see the resurrected Jesus, and they, they tell their friend Thomas, he's alive! We've seen him! And if you know the story, you know that Thomas, he says, man, I have given everything to follow Jesus, and I've just been through this whole crazy experience where the government put him on a cross, and, and the chief priests handed him over to the Roman government. I'm not ready to just go there with you yet and put my faith. In fact, it would take something great for me. I'd have to put my fingers in the nail holes, my hand in the side. And the disciples invite Thomas. Hey, Thomas, just keep, keep with us. Keep hanging out. And a few days later, Thomas is there with the rest of the disciples, and Jesus comes to them again, and he's standing there in their midst. And, and Jesus, I believe, with great compassion, looks at Thomas and says, Thomas, if you need reassurance, come here. Come grab my hand. See the nail holes. Thomas, if you need to be reassured, here's, here's my side. You can place your hand in my side. Thomas, if you need that assurance, it's here. And he tells Thomas, blessed are those who believe without seeing. And anybody who's ever doubted knows that's true. <laughs> Anytime you've been in doubt, you think to yourself, I am struggling to, to know that God is there, to know that God loves me right now. Man, I look at people who can just feel it, and I see the blessing that they have, and I want that, I wish for that. But this is where I'm at. And I think the truth that we need to take away from Thomas's story is that Jesus loves you when you doubt. He invites us to do the same thing that Thomas did. Don't run away from Jesus. 
Don't run away from hanging out with his followers and his disciples. The more you doubt, keep hanging out with us. Keep spending time with followers of Jesus. Keep looking for Jesus because I believe there will be that moment when he comes to you and he says, I'm here. And if you need the assurance, come close. I'm ready to reveal myself to you that you may see and you may believe. God loves us in our doubts, and he invites us deeper into his presence. It's not in scripture, but uh, legends and history tell us that Thomas likely died a martyr for his faith after this moment, giving everything for his belief that Jesus was the Messiah. God loves you when you doubt, and he loves you when you stray. Sometimes we feel like God can love us through failure and he can love us through doubt, but what if I was one of those people who once upon a time I was, I was close to God. I was right there. I had it all. And I walked away. And I stepped away from what he was. And maybe you feel like you know, my failure has been great and it's been egregious. It's as if I just slapped God in the face for everything that he did and I went out and I indulged in every sin and worldly pleasure and godless activity I could think of. And at some point, you hit rock bottom as if there's no depth left to sink to. And you look up and you wonder, man, if God is there, there is no way he could ever love me. Jesus knew that sometimes life has these moments for some of us. He told a story in Luke chapter 15 to illustrate this perfectly. He talks about a father who has two sons, and one of his sons comes to him and basically says, Dad, I want your money that I would get when you die now. Because, Dad, you're dead to me. I don't love you. I don't want to follow you. I don't want to be a part of your household. I don't care about you or anything that you want for my life. I want your money, and I want it now. And the son just egregiously disrespects his father, takes his inheritance, and he goes off in wild living, spends his money on, on prostitutes and, and drugs and wild living as far away from his father as he possibly can until his life hits rock bottom. He finds himself eating pig slop and living in the streets and going, the servants at my father's house had it better than me. And I'm not worthy to ever come near to my father again. But where I'm living here is as bad as I could possibly be. And he thinks to himself, I'll just go home and beg to be a servant and a slave. Not a son, but a slave in my father's house. And as the son starts to draw near, the father is standing on the porch of his house. And the image is as if this father has been doing this every day since the son left. He's just looking out at the horizon. And at a point, he sees his son walking up the road towards the house. And the father takes off running after this son. And if you know anything about first century Jewish men who are landowners and somewhat wealthy, this is scandalous. You're not allowed to go running after somebody. But he doesn't care. He loves his boy. He takes off running after And his son is trying to get words out to say, Dad, I messed up so bad and I'm not worthy to be your son. Can I just be a servant? And the father is not even listening. He just takes a 
robe. He throws it around his son and he says, let's get a ring. And he killed the fatted calf. We're going to throw a party. My son is home. God's position for those who stray is not one of judgment. He's not looking to condemn you or cast you further away. But he scans the horizon every moment. See, I just want to see a glimmer that you would turn back to me. And the moment that you realize that there's anything good about who I am and you begin to turn to me, I will take off running for you. And when I find you, you are not a servant, you are not condemned, you are not held to the lowly position. But immediately the Father welcomes you back and says, you are mine. And I want you. And I love you. And I restore you. Because of the work of Jesus, he is waiting to run scandalously towards you. I love how the modern poet describes it as God's reckless love. That it just doesn't make sense that God would love this way. From our human perspective, God is just acting recklessly towards people who have sinned and taken everything of his. But God so desperately loves us even when we stray. He doesn't care if it's scandalous by human standards. He doesn't care if it makes sense to you. This is his son created in his image. His daughter created in his image. And if you would turn towards him, he loves you and welcomes you back into his presence. God loves you when you hurt. In the 11th chapter of John's gospel, Jesus is with some friends of his, Mary and Martha. And they have lost their brother, Lazarus another dear friend of, of Jesus. When Jesus gets to the home of Mary and Martha, Lazarus has not only died, he's been placed in a grave for several days, and his body is starting to smell. And it simply says this, in the shortest verse of the Bible, as Jesus stands with Mary and Martha in the midst of their grief, it says in John eleven thirty five 35, that Jesus wept. We read again in Psalm 116 that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of one of his faithful servants. I believe, I believe that Jesus loves you when you hurt. When you go through loss and when you go through pain in your life, Jesus doesn't just leave you separated to deal with it, but Jesus draws near and weeps with you. And so often, I think, as we go through these hurtful moments in our life, we hear the enemy whispering in our ear. And he sounds so much like he did in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, Satan comes near to Adam and Eve, and he says, Did God really say, No, God is trying to keep you from the good stuff. Take the fruit, and you can be like God. God is trying to hold you down. When we face loss in life, we hurt. Sometimes it's the loss of a loved one. Sometimes it's, it's the loss of, of um, a possession or a home or a job or a community. We go through these moments where we're going, I am just hurting. What I expected has not happened. What I held on to for strength, it's not here. And the enemy comes to us and he says, Did God really love you? 
If God says that he loves you, why is he allowing you to go through this? Why would God allow you to go through such pain if he really loved you? Jesus. Jesus wants us to know that he understands our pain. He understands our loss. In fact, God the Father experienced loss in that garden when humanity that was created to be in perfect relationship was pulled away from him. When death entered the world, when every human being created in God's image would have to suffer death. And over and over and over again throughout all of history, every human being that God so desperately loved has had to face the tragedy of death. He experiences it over and over again, right alongside him. Every single time you face loss, he feels it too. And just as he did when he gathered together with Mary and Martha, and as they were in the midst of their grief, and Jesus felt the weight of the loss and the hurt and the pain, and he wept with Mary and Martha. He's there in the midst of your grief. He's there in the midst of your hurt and your pain. And he weeps with you. And he walks with you. Saying, this is never what I intended. When God created everything in the beginning, he didn't create death. He didn't create loss. This isn't what I ever had for you. And it hurts. And it hurt with you. God loves you when you feel weak. The Apostle Paul faced weakness in his life. Many scholars think he probably had failing eyesight or maybe a disease in his eyes. And he describes it this way in the book of 2 Corinthians. He says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. Sometimes our weakness is the perfect place for God's power to show up in our lives. Sometimes at that moment where we reach a point where we're like, I just can't even. I can't go on anymore. I can't face this anymore. Maybe it was from the hurt. Maybe it was from the, the temptation or the sin. Maybe it was because of, of something that's happened in our lives. We just reach that point where we're like, I am so weak. And I keep pleading and saying, God, can you just make it better? Just take it away. is with you, that my power is perfect in your weakness, that you can continue on from this moment, not in your own strength, but in my strength. Sometimes when we feel like maybe God isn't showing up, we're just about to that moment where he's about to show up. The prophet Isaiah had this to say about how God responds to his people in weakness. He said that God tends his flocks like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, and he carries them close to his heart. According to Isaiah, when you feel weak, God is carrying you. He's drawing you near to his heart and saying, I will carry you through this moment. Many of us know the Footprints poem. It's not scriptural, but it is. God walks with you in life. Everything that you go through, there's those moments where we feel weak and beaten down and like we have nothing left. And according to Isaiah, in those moments, God is not distant and he is not far. But he draws you to his heart and he loves you and he carries you. God loves you when you feel alone. In Deuteronomy 
says the Lord your God goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. But there's never a moment, though you feel like you are alone, though you feel like you are facing whatever you're facing, and you're all that's left, and God has somehow turned away from you. Know that God will never leave you or forsake you, that he will always walk with you. God loves you when you're afraid. He says in Isaiah, fear not, I'm with you. Be not dismayed, I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Sometimes life is scary. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know what's going to happen. How is this situation going to work out for me? He doesn't always give us the answer we're looking for. But he tells us this. You don't have to be afraid. Because I love you. Because I'm with you. Because I will give you strength. Because I will help you. Because I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Whatever it is that is in front of you that is a situation that makes you afraid, God says, I'm right there with you, walking you through the midst of your fear. God loves you when you feel anxious. Peter tells us we can cast all of our anxiety on him because he loves you, because he cares for you. Because whatever weighs you down, whatever anxieties are on your heart, he's there. He says, bring those to me. I have goodness and provision for you. I love you. In the Apostle John's first epistle, he rather simply states that the reason that the disciples of Jesus are called to be loving in our lives is because our lives are to be a reflection of who God is. And the core trait of God is this. That God is love. For John, he doesn't say that, that God shows love. Doesn't say that God offers love. Doesn't say that God is loving. It says that God's love for you is so great. It's the core essence of who he is. It's how God is best described. It's how we understand the essence of what God is. God is love. Life can be tough. And it can leave almost anyone wondering at points, does God really love me? But if we fact check this perception against scripture, over and over and over again, we would find that this land is absolutely, unequivocally, always false. God the Father sent Jesus into this world because God loves the entire world. And that includes you. God loves you when you fail. He loves you when you doubt. He loves you when you stray and when you hurt, when you feel weak or alone or afraid or anxious. God loves you because God is love. Let me pray for you this morning. God, I think about our congregation and I know only a few of the situations going on in some of the lives of our people. And I realize there are so many issues and things that people are going through and wrestling with health crises and, and relational things and financial things and just wondering about the future and looking for provision and, and wrestling sometimes with temptation and fear and anxiety and doubt. And God, today help us to see Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins to bear. All our griefs to bear. 
He carries us. He walks with us. He is ever-present. We have your strength available. God, help us to know that you love us. God, I pray for our church family that we wouldn't just know it in our mind, but that we would know it in our heart, and that we would know it in our soul, in our spirit, in the fiber of our being, that we would know as we look towards heaven that there is a God, that his name is Jesus Christ, that he is powerful, and that he so dearly, desperately loves each and every one. As we continue in worship this morning, we are going to uh, take our tithes and our offerings. There is uh, baskets available as you exit the sanctuary. You can give online at oakridgewc.com give. You can give online on our Facebook account. You can use your bank's online bill pay. You can snail mail checks to the church. All of your giving goes to help the mission of Oak Ridge Wesleyan Church to continue to be able to share the love of God with our church family, with your friends, and with our community. And so we thank you for your faithfulness and giving as the Lord lays it on your heart. We're going to pray a prayer of blessing over our offering this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the provision that you provide for our families here in this church. Lord, I thank you for the financial resources that you entrust to us. And God, I pray that you would be with us as we give back to you a portion of what you have entrusted to us. God, I pray that you would bless that which is given today. I pray that you would bless those who give today. God, I pray that those who give faithfully according to your word would be blessed in abundance with finances they didn't expect so that, God, the furthering of your kingdom can continue. God, we ask that you would bless this church, that you would give wisdom to its leaders, to its board, and to the pastoral staff as we endeavor to do our best to be faithful to that which is entrusted to us, to further your kingdom, your work, and your mission. God, we pray that you would bless this offering. We pray that you would bless that which is given and those who give. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. We'd love to invite you back next week as we continue our Fact Check series. And don't forget on your way out to stop by, see our kids and our teenagers if you can. Uh, pick up some yummy treats. Even if you cannot give today, feel free to grab some treats. And maybe you can give uh, next week to support them going to camp. There's also some crafts that some of them have made and some of the adults that are going to camp have made. So make sure you just take a look at some of that. And uh, we hope that you have a great week. We hope you invite somebody to join you next week. Join online next week. We would love to have you uh, go with God and have a great week. God bless.